Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from LifeStyleMastery.com and today I'm excited to have James Roberts, who is a Korean American businessman and philanthropist. He's a former singer-songwriter who had his music career tragically ended by a reckless driver in a car accident. He's currently advising companies as an ICO and crypto asset executive. He's invested in over 30 startups and a dozen in, uh, initial coin offerings. He's also an advisor to a number of ICOs. James is an early blockchain and cryptocurrency doctor. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, you know, so can you talk about, you know, uh, how did you get your first job and uh, how did you get in this uh, crazy world of startups? I like it. It's a world of startups. Well, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, you know, people always ask, you know, how did you get into blockchain? How did you get into startups and things of that nature? And I always like to start, you know, with the fact of I'm actually was an orphan as a child. I'm adopted from South Korea. But when I was a little kid, I was like one of them little hustlers, you know, would buy something for, you know, a nickel and try to sell it for more. So, you know, for 25 cents or whatever, 10 cents, you would get a pack of like swimsuit cards or baseball cards back then. And, you know, I would break open the pack and sell the individual cards to make a profit. Just keep, you know, basically reinvesting the profits. And then what happened was is over time, as a child, you know, I kept saving money and saving money. And by the time I was about 19 years old, I started investing in stocks. And I had gotten lucky because one of them had done really well over the years. And a couple of years ago, it was about middle of 2016, I started participating in crowd sales. And on the end of 2016, I really started getting involved in investing in um, startups. So that, that's kind of how I got, got there. Okay. And, uh, you, you know, you, you were earlier a singer and songwriter and, you know, you know, how did music come into picture and, you know, why did you stop? Uh, how did the music career stop? Yeah, since I was a kid, it's kind of strange. Like when I was um, in seventh or eighth grade, I, you know, I taught myself how to play guitar and keyboard and things like that. And, you know, a little cheap keyboard, probably like a $10 little Casio keyboard or whatever, a Yamaha hall. And um, I had bought up it's called a Hondo guitar, which was a kind of an inexpensive guitar, you know, the money I had saved up and I go to the library because back then we didn't really have like YouTube or the internet, which is, you know, really great now because people can learn anything for free. But back then you had to go to the library. I used to walk to the library this thing called the gully was kind of like a woods and um, read all these books about, um, you know, even about investing and stuff and about people like the Rockefellers and things like that, just trying to learn how people became successful. Because when I grew up, we, we were kind of poor, but I got into um, music and taught myself how to do that. And then when I was 18, I, I used to rap. And I actually performed at the Apollo Theater on amateur night. And, um, and then a few years went by, probably about maybe nine, 10 years. And I recorded my own CD and um, released it myself because um, I had tried to get some independent record deals that kind of fell through. So I, I released it myself, and it was in a couple of local stores in Baltimore, Maryland, where I grew up, like um, Record and Tape Traders, Sam Goody's, Musicland, and e even in local Barnes & Noble and Borders. And um, I kind of like joke around, I was bad luck for those stores, because most of them are closed down now. I think Barnes & Noble is the only one that's still left. And um, so I just did that, and the songs got on iTunes, and I think Rhapsody and things like that, and some college radio stations. But I think it was around March 9th of 2012, somebody ran a red light and hit me. So I kind of have problems with my um, back and spine. I even had a brain injury and I had trouble remembering my songs and playing the music. So I've been trying to teach myself 
to play guitar again and stuff like that, but I, I still have some problems with it. So that's kind of why I stopped. Because a lot of people don't realize if you play music professionally, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of physicality, believe it or not. Totally. I also have two two fractured ribs that didn't heal correctly, apparently, which I, I thought something was wrong with my ribs. And they said, oh, nothing's wrong. It's referred pain from your spine. But just recently, I think it was in October, I had um, – CAT scan, whatever they call it, and they said I had two fractured ribs that didn't heal right. So that's that's kind of another issue I'm dealing with with that. So that was kind of the, most of the reasons why I um, stopped doing the music. Okay, and and, uh, and it's after your music career uh, that you started investing into startups and got into the whole startup game. Um, yeah, it was around around the end of 2016, middle of 2016. I mean, okay. I had gotten to crypto around 2013. I had bought Bitcoin. But um, basically, yeah, with startups is around 2016. Yeah, you know, you, you're talking about Bitcoin. Uh, it, you know, 2018 was was a crazy year for Bitcoin. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum? Should should one invest into Bitcoin? I've invested into Ethereum, um, but uh, but I'm not allowed to invest into Ethereum anymore because because the the government in my country does not allow me. So so, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm not really, I'm a registered investment advisor, so I don't really give investment advice. But I, I think more so than the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum, the technology is what's important. So, you know, Bitcoin was kind of a computer science miracle, you know, the way it was created and everything. And, of course, you know, the creator's anonymous. We don't know who it is. You know, it's my opinion. It's probably not just one person, maybe a group of people, and maybe even aided by computers and things like that. But um, I think that the technology one day – going forward that you know how we have paper money is kind of disappearing even before bitcoin i mean you know people have checking accounts credit cards paypal and i've heard i've never been to china but i've heard like in places like that apple pay and samsung pay and things like that when you go into starbucks you know people put up their phone and, and use those services that there's not a whole lot of paper money really being used anymore so i really think that one day that it's almost gonna be like when we send an email money is going to be like just sending an email where you press a button on your phone or some device in order to make payments so it's going to be like a digital money. You know, whether or not it's Bitcoin or some type of cryptocurrency, you know, I don't think anybody knows. But it'll probably be some kind of stable coin, though, that could be even like USD coin or, um, you know, China coin or whatever, Japan coin. You know, they might call it yen, yen or whatever, tokenized yen or digital yen or digital euro. But I do think money will become digital, 100% digital one day because it, it probably costs them more money to – to print the money now on paper than it does than it's actually worth if you're printing dollars. Like I've heard that pennies and stuff like that, it costs more to mint a penny than a penny's worth. Yeah, I completely agree. But you, you know, there's so much of fear about Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies and, and rightfully so, but, uh, but, but what is, what are your thoughts on the, on the way ahead? Where do you think the Bitcoin and Ethereum price will be going? Well, Ethereum, I guess because um, the, the biggest thing with Ethereum when it was going up a lot, a lot of people had to use it to participate in token sales. So they had to buy the Ethereum to participate. So that, I think that kind of drove up the price a lot. And um, people were building their dApps, you know, on the Ethereum platform. So I think a lot of the, the price is going to have to be the demand. So the question is going to be in the future, is it going to be a great demand to build an Ethereum? I'm not really sure that that's the case, but I don't think anybody knows. I, I think that people, there's going to have to be a lot of technological advances in order for that to keep happening. Because a lot of people, there's a lot of competition now. You know, in the beginning, it was just Bitcoin. Then it was Bitcoin and Ethereum. And now there, there's a, a number of major platforms. I mean, there, there's EOS, there's Cardano. There's a number of them. And there's a number of them we've probably never even heard of or haven't even been invented yet. So I think it's impossible to know the future of what's actually going to happen with these things. 
But Bitcoin was important because it was the first one. So I don't think it's going to go away because Bitcoin has massive scale. And I think it's really possible, too, that Bitcoin could be, even be adapted someday. Because I know they say there's only 21 million and it can never be minted. I, I don't really believe that that's actually true. Because even when you get to the 21 million, you could technically fork it and keep creating more Bitcoin. Because the problem with Bitcoin is the proof of work, the further you get with the computation, it takes more and more energy to confirm the blocks. So once all 21 million are minted, the question is what's going to happen? I don't think anyone knows. You know, there's a lot of different speculation. But I do think that some people who think that Bitcoin is going to be the reserve currency, if they end up being right, it's not going to be in the current state that it's in. Because I think it's just too much proof of work and too much energy required for that to be the reserve currency. So what would have to happen is the code would have to be forked. And maybe you could have an unlimited amount and kind of peg it to a dollar and make that a reserve currency in some way. Or, or use the technology. Okay, got it. Um, uh, you know, you advise many companies to do ICOs. Uh, you know, do you think ICOs are going to re replace the venture capital scene or is it going to change the entire funding scene? Um, I don't think that that's going to happen the way everyone thinks it's going to happen. I think on the initial coin offering, the real reason to do an initial coin offering, pe people kind of abused it. Because initially, crowd sales was to build community and get like the diehards involved in a certain project and reward the developers and the early participants. But then, you know, a few of them raised an enormous amount of money and it got out of hand. So then everyone started doing it just to raise money. Yeah, I don't think that was a good thing. I think what's going to happen is, is um, tokens are going to be used in, in companies that we know of, even like a Facebook or an Amazon possibly as a reward system. So it's, it may replace like, you know, how you have Starbucks rewards and things like that. So tokens could end up replacing things like that or even become a currency type of thing within a system. But I don't think it's going to replace venture capital in any way. I think if anything, what ICOs did with the large amounts of money that were raised caused people like SoftBank to realize, you know, there's an enormous demand for money out there. And um, they started writing enormous checks with the Vision Fund. And I've noticed, too, that in venture funding, it's getting really, really hard at the seed level to raise a lot of money. And it's getting hard to go from seed to Series A and even from A to B. But some of the B rounds, I saw one the other day, it was some robotics company had a $600 million Series B. I mean, that's just a ridiculous amount of money for a Series B. And I'm also noticing a lot of Series Bs and Cs are over $100 million. So I definitely don't think that venture capital has been disrupted by initial coin offerings. If anything, SoftBank and mega funds are going to disrupt the way companies are funded because it's going to take so much money now to fund a company. And what's going to happen is a lot of the seed companies, I think founders and even employees are going to get frustrated and it's going to be enormously hard to attract talent when another company just raised $600 million. Or there was one this morning I saw in China raised $1.5 billion from SoftBank. So obviously the top talent is going to go to those companies. I, I completely agree. You know, SoftBank is really disrupting uh, you know, companies in India and China. It's very difficult to, to get away from SoftBank. Um, you know, Forbes recently named you as one of the top 50 angel investors. Um, so, you know, do you, do you have uh, you know, exits from, from uh, some of the investments that you've made? Yeah, I'm not sure where that list was compiled from, but um, most of the exits I have are, are from initial coin offerings. I mean, it's kind of funny because with initial coin offerings, you know, at one time they said, oh, there's this many unicorns in initial coin offerings, but the tokens traded every day on different exchanges. So, you know, just because it was unicorn one day, most of those now, I would say almost all of them aren't unicorns anymore, so it's maybe two or three. So it's kind of, it's kind of funny that they even called those unicorns. But at one time, though, a number of initial coin offerings that I had participated in had become unicorns. I know in one of my bios, I think um, 
you know, it said I had participated in at least 12 initial coin offerings or whatever, but overall crowd sales before it was called initial coin offerings. I mean, I was in way, way more than that. I mean, it's almost too many to count. It's just crazy. So if you were there in the beginning, you were lucky because, you know, you hit all the ones that had big returns on paper in the beginning. The problem was though, that they weren't as liquid until recently a lot of them become more liquid, but the price is so much lower than it used to be. So like Qtum at one time was like, I think $116, but I couldn't sell it for that price because for the size I had, because it wasn't liquid enough for that. So, so it's, it's kind of interesting that way because now there's even an over the counter market for some of the um, altcoins, but back around say December of 2017, when everything was just going straight up like a rocket, unbelievably, there wasn't a lot of liquidity to sell things. I mean, you had to, um, upload on like 10 different exchanges and then try to get filled. It was, it was, it was kind of a nightmare and there was fees transferring from this to that. It was just crazy. Okay. And uh, you know, uh, what do you look for an entrepreneur, you know, when you're looking to invest into them, uh, are you looking at a, at a particular industry or are you, or you're a sector agnostic? Yeah, I'm kind of sector agnostic. I think it really boils down to the founder, how determined they really are, how relentless they really are. But also one thing I've learned is how, how well they adapt. Because I think things are changing so fast in the world today, especially with technology. And just even things you would never think of, like the way SoftBanks come in and just started writing these ridiculous sized checks, is how, how can someone adapt? Because unfortunately, when SoftBank can write somebody a billion dollar check, you could have the most relentless founder, the best team, but that amount of money, a competitor might be able to kill you with a billion dollars. I mean, that's yet to be determined, but I, I'm starting to think that kind of money might actually be a dif dif differentiator because, you know, I know Google and Facebook and Amazon, they won't admit it, but they're, they're monopolies. And if they're not monopolies, they're like duopolies or whatever you want to call, call them. And um, the problem is when someone has that much money, they can just buy all the customers and buy all the employees and create their own monopoly. So it's going to be interesting to see in the future if that comes into, into play. I mean, I don't think anyone knows, but I think it's going to be very, very hard now. And you're really going to have to be adaptable and resourceful to be able to compete with companies that have that much money. Got it. And, you know, what, what sort of traction do you look for when you, uh, when an entrepreneur, you know, reaches out to you and, and you know, looks at, uh, you know, looks at, you know, getting some angel invest, uh, investments from you? Yeah, things change over time because even myself, I'm adapting a lot because, um, you know, back when I started, if someone just had an MVP, then any other, they went go into an accelerator like Y Combinator or 500 Startups or Alchemist Accelerator. I'm actually a mentor at Alchemist Accelerator in Silicon okay. Valley. Then um, that was kind of a really good signal. And, you know, because you, you don't really just invest in ideas, really. I mean, you're investing in people, but they have to be able to prove they could do something. You know, they could get into the accelerator, they could make a minimal viable product and things like that. But now that's not even enough because um, now really I look for them to have some kind of, you know, annual recurring revenue, some kind of monthly revenue, you know, between ten and 50000 a month because um, now it's so, it's so easy to start a startup. There's too many people doing it. Everyone from Stanford wants to have a startup now. Everyone from Harvard wants to have a startup. So everyone's smart and the competition is enormous. I mean, it's so many smart people. So you really have to prove now that you have some type of product market fit with revenue and things of that nature. And even now, I, I kind of wonder, just because you have revenue, 10 to 50,000 a month, is that even enough? Because SoftBank writes your competitor a $600 million check. W what do you do? Right. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree on that. You know, you've got to be uh, really resourceful and really, you know, prove that you can, you know, take it to the next level. Uh, but, you know, of all the investments that you have, how do you, how do you support them? 
uh, you know, in, uh, instead of just you know uh, backing them with money, uh, are you are you helping them in any other way? Yeah, I, tr- I try to help them, however I can. So the reason I, I say it kind of broadly like that is because um, you know, there are some people out there that will invest in the companies and try to tell them what they're doing, all this good stuff. Like I, I don't really believe in that. So if um, when I invest in, in the founders, I kind of look at it like family. So you know, if they need something, they can always call me or text me or whatever anytime they want to, and I can try to help in any way I can, if possible. So there are a lot of companies that will text me, you know, weekly or some some of them. If there's a problem, they'll call, or, or sometimes they'll be, you know, daily for a few days or whatever to try to help them solve the problem or help make introductions if someone else can help. If they can help better than I can, because you know. So, sometimes you don't always know the answer. And I think it's better if you don't know the answer to tell them and try to find, help find someone else who can help them with that instead of try to pretend you're an expert at everything. So I just try to help in, in any way I can. Okay. And, uh, you know, how, how do you get the deal flow from, you know, you made investment into, in, into a lot of startups and you're advising a lot of uh, startups to do ICOs. Or, uh, you know, do you get the deal flows from, uh, from the accelerators and then the fast start you're advising? Yeah, a lot of deal flow. I mean, I'm invited to demo days, so you get to see a lot of companies the accelerators. And then, um, you know, I actually got a lot of inbox too, where people are just, you know, I, I guess cold emailing is is the best way to explain it. But um, it's kind of hard to get somebody to invest off of a cold email because you don't really know the person. You can't meet them. I mean, you you could go meet them eventually, but um, you know, really the thing now I really am most concerned about is I want to make sure that the founders aren't going to quit. I think it's really hard to know that because sometimes quitting is the right thing. So, you know, if you have a company and you have some revenue and um, you can sell the company and that's the only alternative other than going to zero, that's probably the best decision. But, you know, really as venture and angel investing, you're kind of looking for outliers. So the chances are 99% of them are probably going to fail, which failure may not even be a zero. Even a 1x is considered a failure, you know, in venture investing because you're looking for the next Uber or the next Airbnb or the next Facebook or the next Amazon. And, you know, maybe one out of a thousand companies is going to have that kind of return. But that, that's what you're looking for. So you're looking for like serious outliers. And I think a lot of it has to do, it has to be the founder's life work. So it really has to be their life work that when things get hard, they're not just going to give up. And I'm starting to think now it really has to be something too where the moat is something that isn't really obvious. Because I invest in a company called Cheershare. And you know, anyone could make, make an app that does what they do. But their moat is, is that the um, guy, Dr. Ty Codwell, he's got a PhD in pharmacology, I may not even be saying that right, but um, there's not very many of them in the world. And in his industry, he's like world renowned. He's an expert. He, he's a celebrity barber and things like that. So, so in that field, that's his life's work. So I, I'm really you know, happy about them and they're doing really well. And I think that it'd be really hard for someone like a salt bank just to write someone, you know, a $500 million check and kill them. Because if you or I could start that kind of business, but if we started calling the hair salons and trying to get the, um, the barbers on board and people like that, they would hang up on us. They'd be like, who are you clowns? But you know, when he calls, it's like, oh my God, you know, we're talking to this guy. He's a legend in that field. So it, it gives them the opportunity to create a market that doesn't exist. And by the time someone like SoftBank comes in to try to disrupt it with a lot of money, I, I don't really think it's going to be that big of a difference because, you know, he has enormous street cred and you, you can't buy that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you've been an angel investor for a couple of years. You know, uh, I want to know what what is your take on how much of a portfolio uh, should be into, into risky investments, considering that you know somebody has uh, money into into uh, in, in cash equivalent or uh, into stocks or real estate. Uh, what is your take on how much uh, money somebody who's young, you know, somebody into into their twenties and thirties? Yeah, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the United States, it's a little bit different than in other um, countries. Like, I've, I've heard that um, because in the United States, you have to be an accredited investor. And there's not a lot of accredited investors. Accredited investors are about 1% of the population or less in the United States. And um, I heard that um, in other countries like Europe, under I think it's called S4, the people that are not accredited can invest in riskier things. I mean, I kind of have an opinion that people should be allowed to put their money in what they want. Because in the United States, they let you buy lottery tickets. They let you go to Vegas. But, you know, I'm not a registered investment advisor, but I, I do think that in risky investments, illiquid things and startups and things like that, that you shouldn't have a, a large amount of your net worth. So somewhere probably between one and 5%. The problem is in some things on paper, when you get drift, they'll go up a lot in value. It could drift to 10 or 20% of your net worth, you know, depending. But yeah, I really wouldn't deploy more than, you know, one to 5% of your net worth and whatever you would feel comfortable with. So for instance, I always say, you know, when, when you write a check, 25,000, whatever is an angel or 10,000, you have to realize when, when you write that check, you may never see the money again. So, you know, if that money disappeared, that it wouldn't make any difference in your lifestyle and, you know, it wouldn't, ups, you wouldn't get all upset or go crazy or whatever that um, it, ha it has to be inconsequential. I, I completely agree, you know, anywhere from 5% or 10%, uh, some, somebody who's making, you know, at least $200,000, $300,000 uh, can invest into such risky investments. And, uh, uh, you know, do you, do you avoid any sort of industries like, you know, hardware, uh, which, which can be a little difficult to, to scale up or, uh, or do, you, do you focus only on blockchain and, uh, you know, you, do you have investments for any specific industry? Yeah, I've invested in hardware before, but I think, you know, they say hardware is hard. I'm starting to think that's really right because it's really capital intensive. And um, I think software, at least in today's world, is easier to scale and a lot less capital intensive. And most of my investments are, are in software or software type things. I, I think it's um, really hard to know what the future brings. I mean, I think that the next um, big thing is going to come from somewhere that we didn't see coming. I mean, right now I'm really looking into cannabis tech to see, um, you know, what's going on because I, I think that if ca cannabis eventually is probably going to become legal in the entire United States, I really think they should do it just for the tax revenues. You know, they should regulate it and have it in all 50 States. And then, you know, if people have objections, they could always, you know, I call it a syntax things like cannabis and alcohol and things like that, they could um, have a higher tax, which would help with the state's revenues also. But I think cannabis has a lot of benefits. I mean, I've really been reading about um, medical cannabis, how a lot of patients can really be helped with, with that, especially people with chronic pain. I mean, I have chronic pain and I've never you know, had cannabis before, but if it became you know, widely legal and there was a lot of um, research on it, how to use it medically, it could be something worth exploring. I'm not really sure because I don't know a lot of, about it. Like I've, I've heard stories of some people, I think it's called CBD oil, which is some kind of derivative of cannabis, have had a lot of results where you know, they have a lot of pain and they say it's really helped them. But I don't know how much of that is placebo effect that's in their head or how much of it is really medically true. I don't know a lot about that. Yeah, it's pretty interesting uh, stuff with cannabis, especially in Canada, where, you know, or in some of those provinces, if I'm not wrong, uh, they made it legal. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of industries which are, which are coming up, which will be very interesting in a couple of years. Uh, and, and so where do, you, where do you see it going? You know, do you think the whole funding scene is, is really heated up and uh, there's going to be a, a big crash going forward or, you know, and, you know with SoftBank coming with a $100 billion vision fund? Uh, and there are a lot of other VC funds who, you know, who are raising bigger funds. Uh, 
what what is your take on uh, on the on the funding thing uh, going forward and do, do you think this there's going to be a big bubble later on yeah i think eventually you know there there's ebbs and flows and cycles just like you know back in the day they had the, the big nasdaq bubble and i mean everybody said you know tech was dead after that burst and then it reemerged with social media around 2005 to to now this is another cycle i i think that um right now that all the money is going into what i call the the venture stage so it's basically from series c on where there's enormous amounts of checks and it's kind of like come down where people are calling it a series b but they're raising enormous amounts of money and the problem is it's taken like 13 and a half years or so for for companies now to go public and have you know really big exits with enormous valuations so i i'm i'm not sure how this is going to play out but it's, it kind of seems to me that the early investors are the ones taking the most risk and the reward may not be the greatest because when someone comes in with a 600 million dollar check or a billion dollar check they're probably getting you know preferential rights that you don't have and actually taking the early investors rights that are supposed to be with preferred stock you know you have a liquidity preference but i have a feeling i have no proof that if somebody's writing a billion dollar check they probably have 2x liquidity preference and things like that so you're actually falling lower on the totem pole so i i i think that um it's becoming a world of super haves and have nots and startups so it's going to be really really hard for for the newer companies that when they raise money that you might become profitable and you're just kind of pulling along but the biggest risk now is that your employees are going to get fed up and they're going to quit and go to the companies that are raising all this money i mean i'm i like the book blitz scaling i i think that's a great idea but i think the problem is when everyone does something it stops working so if everybody's getting you know 100 million dollar and then 600 million dollar and billion dollar checks and everybody's blitz scaling just spending like mad for growth everybody can't be the next facebook And if everybody has a valuation like that then all the investors didn't win as much it's not as big a return because the amount of dilution because really if you raise a 600 million dollar round you should be going public so that that's the problem companies are staying private too long yeah and that's what you know i was coming to you know tech startups are waiting longer for ipos we might get an ipo with uh, uh you know airbnb uh, uber and all but uh, should tech startups look for exits uh, or you know employees uh should should look at secondary sales uh, or, or should they stay private what what's your take on that well i guess what happened too is i think in the united states they changed some kind of law where you can have 5000 investors not counting the employees that may not be the right number but it's it's a larger amount without having to do the reporting of a public company so it enabled companies to stay private longer and you know when you go public there's a lot of scrutiny you have to do all these reports quarterly reports and all this auditing and just you know stuff that takes away from the business so i can understand not wanting to deal with that hassle but it's there has to be some kind of in between so i i think we've shifted too far because i know the united states tried to solve that with the reg a plus offering but the problem with the reg a plus is those companies are might technically be public but there's no liquid market for them so there has to be a market for the shares too i know that you know companies like uber and airbnb there is a pretty good secondary market I mean I've invested in some companies on the secondary market when they were in the 100 million valuation and now you know they're supposedly 3 billion 6 billion or, or whatever they're saying but then when you go to sell on the secondary market a lot of times if you chose to do so sometimes you have to sell at a discount so it's not truly that valuation but for the early employees and the founders to get a little bit of money so they're not you know just living off of ramen noodles or whatever you want to call it um I think that's a good thing but if they get too much money sometimes I think that kills like the fight the spirit so you know if somebody's a founder and they can sell their shares and have 10 million dollars overnight that might be too much but you know if you live in San Francisco and you're 
basically in an apartment with 10 other people and on paper you're worth like a billion dollars literally but you, you can't cash out I, I think it's okay if you know they can get a few hundred thousand or a million where they can buy a house and they can actually have a car and you know not not be like looking over their shoulder that they're paper rich but they're actually poor so that that's a good thing but the, the problem is is i don't think there's any easy solution or any easy answer because unfortunately i think a lot of people think starting a startup now has become prestigious so i call it you know startup tourist and then we have social media and there's a lot of founders that want to become ceos so they can go speak at all these conferences but people don't realize back in the day mark zuckerberg didn't go around speaking at conferences jeff bezos didn't go around speaking at conferences they were relentlessly building a business now i mean i understand we didn't have social media back then that's another thing too everybody wants to be famous on social media uh, i think that really takes away from building a big business from a lot of CEOs. It puts the focus on the wrong thing because I think the focus should be on, on your mission. And in a lot of businesses like Amazon, relentless focus on the customer because if the customer's happy and the customers are always hard to please, you're always going to be trying to improve. Right. Yeah, James, you know, uh, you've given a lot of knowledge bombs. Uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with the kind of uh, knowledge that you've amassed. Uh, you know, if you know, some of the listeners want to get into investing, into startups, you know, what, what would you suggest them with? Where should they uh, get to learn about, about investing and get to learn more about, uh, about the startup uh, thing? Yeah, it's funny you ask that because when I first started getting into startups, I actually used YouTube. And I watched videos. Paul Graham is actually um, was one of my heroes. I watched him talk a lot. And I watched you know, Sam from YC talk a lot. And then Ron Conway from SV Angel, which I heard SV Angel stopped um, doing seed investing, but they're going to um, do follow-ons and concentrate on the companies they invest in. And um, also, Jason Calacanis, he's one of my heroes, too. He wrote a book called Angel. It's a great book. And you can, you can listen to his podcast this week in startups. You can learn a lot from him. And also, too, I'm studying... Um, you know, SoftBank now, Mashi Sun. I, I like to watch YouTube and, and listen to these people talk, even not their most recent things, but things from years ago and see how they progress through time. And believe it or not, I also like to study athletes like Michael Jordan and Kobe and like Emmett Smith because I think the determination of these people helps you figure out what are the building blocks of success. So watching things like that and listening to talks with Jeff Bezos. And, you know, a lot of people don't agree with Mark Zuckerberg right now, but the one thing you can say about him is, no one can argue this, is he never got off the mission. His, commission, his mission was um, connecting everyone in the world on Facebook. Now, you, we may not agree with some of his tactics. You know, you could or could not agree, but he never went off mission. Everything he did has always supported that mission. I think there's a lot to learn from that. Uh, no, no, I completely agree. You know, uh, I, I love Jason Calacanis' podcast. I love his book. Uh, Paul uh, Paul Graham has written some great essays. You know, we're going to put that in the show notes. Uh, so let's quickly do the top three. Uh, what's your favorite business book? Oh, well, with angel investing, it's Jason Calacanis' Angel. Okay. I, I think one great business book is Think or Grow Rich. When I was a kid, I, I read a lot of books. And, um, you know, growing up, through the years, through college and all that. I think Thinking Grow Rich is a really good book because it really explains to you. I think they kind of, you know, gets up to interpretation. But what I took from it is, is what you think about most of the time and what you focus on and what you're willing to pay the price to achieve with relentless hard work and doing the work is what you become. Uh, that's what I really got out of that. Okay. And, and, you know, if you could go back in time when you started investing, uh, what is the one thing you would have focused on? Or anything you would have done differently? Uh, well, I, I think that um, 
one thing is I didn't really anticipate the way things were going to change. So, I mean, some of the companies I invested in that, that are, you know, actually have a good revenue now and are profitable. Like the, the biggest goal in investing is, you know, to try to find the next Uber, Airbnb, or Facebook, or Amazon. I think some of those, some of those companies, it's, it's going to turn out all right. It's, it's going to be a decent return. But I, I didn't really think about the future of like what happens if a salt bank comes in and starts writing, you know, billion dollar checks. How does that make this harder? How does that keep that company or, or really tilt the odds in the favor that they're never going to be the next Amazon? And, you know, will the founder, even though they're dedicated to what they're doing and they believe in their mind, it's their life's work. When you hit the roadblock all of a sudden and a co another company raises, you know, $100 million, $600 million is trying to steal your employees. If you lose those employees or you can't keep them, you know, how does that company continue on the path to become the next Facebook? Because it becomes that much harder. I mean, exponentially. So I really didn't think about that. So that, that's what I'm trying to kind of think about now is how, how do I really find something that's so different that there isn't going to be any competition that even a soft bank or someone that money can't basically um, isolate you, make, make it so much harder. Like, like the sheer share, I think, is a really good one because um, – I don't think anybody like SoftBank could write an enormous check no matter how much money and, and kill them because you, you, can't, you can't take the credibility away from them. Yeah, it's like what Warren Buffett says, what's the moat, uh, you know, which, is, which makes it really difficult for other co companies to pick. So uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack? Um, I mean, I like using LinkedIn kind of where we connected. But um, I think one of my, my favorite online tools is um, YouTube to learn. And also, too, there's things like edX where you, anyone now can get a free Harvard education. You may not get the diploma. And I understand that um, you know, people go to places like Harvard and MIT and um, Stanford for the, for the network because you, know, you, you network with the people and you have your, I guess, your lifelong, um, I guess you want to call them fraternity brothers or you know, people who went to the same affiliation the same school as you which is a great thing but nowadays anybody can learn anything they want off the internet now you know sometimes you got to use critical thinking to see what makes sense and what doesn't but it's, it's kind of strange too because i've never taken a computer science course but i became a mentor at stanford for the um d apps course which is actually a graduate course and you know I, I never even graduated from college but i learned about the technology when i got into blockchain and all that I learned all that off the internet. I mean, there's GitHub, you know, learning about the code, watching different videos on the internet about coding and different things. And, you know, some of it might be correct, some of it might not be, but I kind of use my own critical thinking and develop my own thoughts. Right. No, I, I love the kind of hustle that you've done uh, over, over the last few years. Uh, you know, what, what is the best way people can reach out to you? Um, I think the best way people can do, um, people can follow me on um, Twitter at Primal Key or on um, Instagram at JJ Sowers. And then, you know, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, a lot of people, a lot of big problem with LinkedIn now, though, there's, there's a lot of salespeople and spammy on there, which, um, you know, I guess is, is okay if somebody has something to offer. But I think people are just shotgunning now. So if people, you know, hear this and want to connect me on LinkedIn, they should probably, like, put a little message in there where they, um, where they found me. Because one thing I started asking people is, where did you find me? Because I get, I get a lot of inbox now, cold emails. I always wonder how these people found you because um, I've heard that there's certain groups out there now selling lists of investors or people and people are just randomly, I call it shotgunning people. Yeah, uh, no, the, I, I, the, I, I, the, 
Yeah, the very best way, you know, to get, in, I think, contact with any investor and be taken seriously is through a warm introduction. And I think that's very possible now through LinkedIn. There's always someone who's connected to you that actually knows you, even though I think I'm connected to 18 or 19,000 people and most of them I don't actually know. But, you know, maybe 10% of them I actually do know. So if somebody's determined enough, I think they can, they can find a way to get a warm introduction. So, you know, we'll, we'll put the show, social media uh, links on the, on the, on the show notes. Uh, thank you very much for your time, James. Uh, I have yeah. absolute pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.